Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this podcast has a Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Um, so, Isabella Mansfield, poet. Poet. Welcome to the podcast. Find my water. <laughs> you know how I found you? How's that? Uh, so, I, a woman I did my MFA with, I'm connected with on Instagram. Her name is Rhea. Or Rhea. Okay. She and she, yeah, she shared some of your stuff um, through the Instagram, the, you know, the 24 hour circle on top there. Yeah. I forget what that's called. Uh, she shared some of your work there. And I'm like, oh, tell me about this poet and uh, why you shared. And so I ended up buying your book and inviting you onto the podcast. I thought that would, um, I don't always discover people unless it's through someone else, because I don't actively buy the journals or collections and stuff like that. But everybody else I graduated with does. <laughs> so I, just, I just go through them and. Uh, like finding, you know, new, your new favorite movie. Cause you borrowed it from your buddy down the street. Right. Exactly. We, um, one of my husband's favorite movie is wrist cutters, a love story. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. And he loaned it to a friend in film school who absolutely loved it and never gave it back. Really, and we, we, now we're down a movie. I think I've bought it twice now. <laughs> yeah, I love it when that happens. Uh, there's just so much. There's so much content out there. It's it's impossible to discover it without help. Right. You know, uh, and I don't know if there's anything I discovered on my own accord that wasn't a result of a contact or something, you know, another contact. Um, I think that's fantastic though. And it speaks to that relatability, you know, somebody saw something and they loved it and it reached you, you know? And, and I, I think that's like, for me, that's kind of the dream. It's like, I just want people to just be like, Oh man, she said that thing that I really liked and I really identified with and I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about like art is, I come from a place where there's a disturbing amount of apathy towards the arts. So when I find somebody who's passionate enough to share it, which is also really hard to get people to do on social media, um, I want to know why. I want right. to I want to know what was the 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 spark that gave you gave that person the impulse to share it because right. that's part of unpacking the mystery is into. Uh, if I can understand what makes somebody share it, then maybe I can get closer to understanding why somebody wouldn't want to. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's, that's definitely a, a mystery to me as well. I've seen quite a lot of, even some of my own family members who love and share poetry and love it. And like, they, I, I'm invisible. Like, Hey, <laughs> yeah. The fair well, amount of like pouting in the shadows that happens. Uh, you know, that's the most, that's a, so common, not just in, with writing, but with the arts in general. I can't tell you how many actors I've had on here that none of their parents supported them until they saw them maybe on a TV show that they already knew before, you know, 
oh, now wait, I, I watched that show and you're on it. So you must be legit. But at the same time, it's just like, well, I felt legit prior to you, you know, seeing me on TV. Always uh, been here. Yep. At least you're not an actor because that's even worse. Um, I, I know a few. <laughs> I have, Like I said, my husband went to film school out in Arizona and through his school projects, we, you know, we cast a couple of projects ourselves. You know, I was involved in, you know, pre-production and stuff like that with him and casting and location scouting. And there's just, Oh, nope. I'm not, not into acting. Nope. Not going to be my thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a tough life. And it's, it's a life too, that um, unless you have some sort of business ability, you're almost solely dependent on another person's approval, which is soul destroying. Uh, Yeah. So let's talk about your books. Okay. Um, Thanks for sending the the two out of print books. You're welcome. I hope you. uh, Actually, I'll I'll talk a little bit about why why I asked for them. um, Okay. And why I initially would have just bought them if they had been available. I'm interested in the um, the growth of the artist. So um, the story that our MFA people wanted us to sort of curate for ourselves because I, I had an MFA in creative writing about 20 years after I went through film school. Um, and even in film school, it was the same thing. You are not to release anything until you're an expert at it. And I didn't understand why, because I wanted to see, I, my, my goal was always to demystify the arts, regardless of the medium. So when I went to film school, for example, I ended up going to the film school that Kevin Smith dropped out of. Nice. I wanted to know why he dropped out of it. I found out within two weeks. But I also wanted to see what he produced before he dropped out of it, because I know for a fact that Clark's, his masterpiece, wasn't his first movie, even though it's always billed as his first movie. Yeah. So the One first of thing I did... successes, right? But First success, right. but not his first movie. Um, so the first thing I did was I went into the school archives and I pulled out all the work from his graduating class and I found his documentary that he made. I, and uh, probably his first things were the exercises they made them do, but those aren't archived. Uh, so I found his documentary that he made, um, which there's a lot in there that is so obviously a precursor to clerks. So I could unpack and see, okay, hey, this is where these aspects of his work are rooted but then also this is an indicator of the personality to come because his work completely fell apart and they had to retool the documentary to be about why the documentary fell apart, which I thought was fascinating. And it's totally within line of his personality. Yeah. Uh, but then with the, with the writing, it was, I had pitched, I'd pitched doing a book of a short story, but where every version of this short story is presented in order. And I got so much shit for it. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool, though, to see how each version after one editing pass, you know, how it changes? Because, I don't know, as a, as a creator, I've, I learned more from seeing how writing develops than just reading the final thing. And... 
it's just not a, it's it's not part of the story so many creators want so when i invite writers onto here i'm always looking at their back catalog in addition to the the latest thing that they've released um well i yeah, I, I'm into the lifelong journey, I guess. I think that's fantastic. And I, I appreciate the support of my uh, the back catalog. I took them down and out of print myself um, because I got to a spot where I, not that I wasn't proud of them anymore, but I just felt like, I don't know if these are good. <laughs> like I, I, I got to that second guessing and I wasn't really sure how I felt about the work. And the second one, especially, I really enjoyed. But looking back, I think it was really, really rushed. I put that one together in the course of a year. Yeah. And like from start to finish to like published, it was out. So then I would ask, what is good? Because I've done the same shit where um, my first three novellas, I put out myself. Mm-hmm. And then I pull them and then I put them out again and then I pull them. I clean them up and then I put them out again, but they're not out right now. <laughs> and, but the thing is, is those are the ones that, you know, I've gotten the most feedback on from weirdly people who I wouldn't consider to be readers. They'd be like, Oh, this actually, this makes sense to me. And, and they're asking me questions about it. And so I'm like, okay, so from a writing standpoint, or maybe, um, uh, looking at myself as creator and wondering where I stand in the creative sphere. Uh, I hate those books. (laughs) I don't want them to be a part of me, but at the same time, they're the, that's the stuff that got the most responses, Mm -hmm. even though I know they're not good. (laughs) So what, what's good? Is it, is it more that, um, I mean, besides you know, just kind of being able to loosen up and and break out of maybe a certain preconception or maybe breaking out of the, um, and omitting the whole editorial thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Editing is is just a mechanical process that eventually we warm to. But if this book that I put out years ago, which was seeded when I was in high school, so it's obviously a juvenile view of the world. If that garners more responses from people and asks and more questions, then maybe I'm not a good enough authority on myself to critique myself, you know? I'm very attacked by that statement. I feel like I identify <laughs> that very strongly. What I think is interesting is when I put out at arm's length, for example, um, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to back up a little bit and mention that like, you know, when I first started writing poetry in middle school, I remember thinking I would love to have a book one day. I would love to be a published poet, but nobody reads poetry and nobody would buy my sad because at the time, the only poetry that I knew was the poetry that I wrote at 13 and, you know, moody 13 year old girl poetry and I kept thinking like ew nobody's gonna want to buy that no nobody would buy that and about the time my son was he had just turned one I unearthed a huge five-star zipper binder full of all of my high school poetry it is 
in the other room right now. Um, the pencil marks are fading, so I took the time to throw them all onto Google Docs. Like, I just wanted to have them saved. And a friend of mine read a couple of them, and he said, you should publish a book. You should just self-publish a, a little something. Just put them out there. And I thought, that's a thing. I could do that. I don't have to, like, self-publishing was ideal because I didn't have to deal with rejection. Like, this is fantastic. I can just have it. Uh, and so that's kind of where it came from. And some of the, like, I didn't process, like, I didn't lay them out specifically. I just, I put them down in chronological order. And then that's how they stuck with the exception of the very first poem in the book. Everything else is chronological order. And some of the poems date back to when I was about 17. And so looking back at that work now, I see a lot of unpolished. Um, I don't think I really knew my own voice at that point. I didn't really know what I wanted to say or what I was trying to say or to whom I was saying it. And that's one of those things that I think has come with, come with the process and come with time and come with more books. Yeah. Interestingly enough though, I, like you, I had a lot of feedback on that first book and I had a, a decent amount of sales. You know, you self-publish it, it goes out right onto Amazon and like within the first day, it was like number two bestseller in poetry. I'm like, that lasted for like an hour. But I about lost my mind with that. And it, like, I think what had happened as I look at all the people who bought it, and these are not poetry readers. These are not people who buy poetry books regularly. And I think it was very much a, hey, my friend wrote a book, I'm going to support her. That's cool. And I bought a book. And then I put out the second one and a lot of people were like, cool, you did it again. And I've already bought the first one. Like, so and so bought the second one? I, I, I did not, the, the second book did not sell well at all, <laughs> at all. And so that was definitely frustrating. And after that, I'm like, I'm not self-publishing again. This is stupid. Nobody reads poetry. I'm going to go crawl into a hole and die now. But like, I kept, I, you, you keep going. I can't, I can't not write. It's just kind of, it just kind of happens. No, you know, I mean, if that's your, you know, your thing. Um, I think it's it's great to have a writing practice regardless of whether you're publishing or not but um yeah the biggest mistake i think a lot of people make when self-publishing is is that misconception that a set a sell to a family member matters because it doesn't it's nice to get that initial support but it, I always omitted those from um, the list when I was deciding whether or not something was working. Mm -hmm. um, and it got to a point, too, where um, I don't even run anything by a relative anymore. Um, yeah. So. I am in the space now with my, my writing career. I guess I, I can say writing. I can say writing career. Yeah. Um, where it is more important the family that I have chosen. 
versus the family that I was born with. And I love my family. I really do. But they don't get it the same way, you know? And so the, the people that I've met in the, the writing community out here, uh, the writing community I've met all over the world, it's not like, I don't want to say like, well, everybody else's opinion of my work matters because I'm writing because it's meaningful to me, but they're the ones who understand it better. They're familiar with the process and they're familiar with the feelings and the the pain of, you know, oh my God, I, I know what it's like to be in that position. And it's humbling when, you know, if I go to an open mic and someone who I absolutely, I love their work, they read something and I'm like, oh my God, I love this. And they come up to me after I'm done. I'm like, oh my God, I love that. I'm like, okay, well, you get it. You got it. And, you know, so it, it, it feels good when it's, when it's kind of recognized by someone who gets it. Yeah. Well, they're going through a parallel journey or have gone through a par parallel journey, you know. Sure as shit, if they're a writer who doesn't have another writer in their family, they're going through a parallel journey. <laughs> um, My brother used to be in a, a, a series of bands when I was in high school. And, you know, watching him do all the, the local band stuff and selling his merch and stuff like that. It's like, it's tough out there. And I feel like poetry is like this, this much tinier little niche market. And yeah. it feels a little bit harder. Cause like everybody loves music. You might not like rock music. You might not like country music. You, but you know, ev not everybody likes to read. And the people who like to read don't always like poetry. You know, and the people who like poetry might not like my poetry. They might like nature poetry they might only like sonnets i don't know you know yeah so specific do you ever feel like maybe sometimes there might be um, a motivation of protection with some of this um, protecting maybe protecting a family member from what they think might be inevitable disappointment. Not that it's inevitable, but they think it's inevitable. I don't know. Mm. Uh, sometimes I feel like the things that I write about and the journeys I've been through to get me to where I'm writing, uh, I feel like my family wouldn't understand or they haven't really tried. Uh, there are some poems that I've written that were, you know, where my mom, for example, would say, I really identified with this as a woman, as a mother, whatever. And I appreciated that, but there are some that are much more painful in, in the things that I've written where I, I don't feel like they get it. And sometimes I'm like, I, I've written this thing and like, please ask me about it. <laughs> Because I've written it, and if, if I've written it and shared it, clearly I'm I'm at a point where I'm okay with it. I'm okay with sharing it or talking about it. And when people in my family, especially, haven't asked or commented or noticed, it's like, oh, okay, well, let me just 
put those bricks back up. You know what I mean? Like it, it, you build that wall back up. So I don't know. It's, yeah. it's that's an interesting question. Yeah, and I I actually like the um, this idea of please ask, please ask about it. Mm-hmm. I because th- I feel like that's probably the most common desire for any creative posting anything, even even if they they don't know that that's what they want. They I think most people want to be asked about what it is that they put. Well, it's there. the window into my life. You know, it's. I've, if I've written something, whether it's humorous or painful or anywhere in between, it's based on something I experienced and it's based on something I felt very deeply about. And for someone to not even, you know, it's, and you know, not that social media is the be all end all of everything, but like for someone to not even say, wow or thank you for sharing or anything. It's the silence is loud sometimes, you know, I remember writing something very, very personal a couple of years ago and the feedback I got on what I had shared was amazingly supportive, but I was much more aware of the people who didn't respond at all. I, their omission was just you know glaring it was that was a hard that was a hard one how are uh what is it salt and octopus salt and octopus (laughs) salt and octopus the two cats yep uh salt is laying in a sunny patch right over in the living room octopus is probably still on the couch (laughs) i was just wondering i got i got some cats back there i bought yours back there i got eight (laughs) You ate. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we um we had three for a long Jan and I had three for years. And then we found pregnant mama oh on the streets oh of New York and she was so sweet. But of course she was she was just looking for food. Um <laughs> and she just gave birth in our fireplace. Because <laughs> we're not allowed to use our fireplace for fire, so we just made yeah. that her home and uh now in she gave birth to five, and they all survived, and they're all here. That's amazing. Couldn't be, couldn't bear to part with any of them, huh? <laughs> um, we managed to rehome one to her aunt, but we still consider it ours. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not allowed to find a new home for them. I've been told no. My son is constantly begging for a third cat, and I cannot be the one to take him to the pet store for to pick up cat food or supplies or anything because I am too much at risk of caving. And my husband says, no, no more than two. No, 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 no. Yeah, I'm begging for a dog, <laughs> but we're not allowed to have one in our apartment. I'm like, I don't care. I want a dog. Battle of New York, right? <laughs> I've been there exactly once and I don't remember it. So. Well, you'll come, you'll come back. Oh, okay. um, uh, once poetry poetry nights are back up again i'll invite you please do i miss i miss it i was getting ready to return to boston um at the end of march last year for a writer's retreat with clementine von radix and sabrina benign i was very much looking forward to that i was booking spots for a michigan-based tour with two other michigan writers all of our dates were 
spring and early summer and they were all postponed yeah i had i had tickets to hamilton <sighs> and uh they were gifted to me and they broadway closed like a week later yeah so i never got to see it until it wound up on disney but that doesn't count yeah. so can i can i talk about two of your poems please um and then i'd like to hear which we're going to just talk about the poems in this book because it's the one gotcha. that is available um, I'm going to tell you the two that I gravitated towards, and then I don't know if you if you if you want to, but I'd be interested in the ones that you're that you think are the anchor to this book. All right. Um, you know, I used to do a lot of work in the fashion industry, um, pretty vile industry. I think oh. it's 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 worse than weapons manufacturer. <laughs> uh, well, as far it as industries go. It weaponizes our bodies. Yeah. Uh, so I really, page 20, I really loved Wrong. I thought that that's, um, that's, that's when I gravitated towards as being super meaningful and important, um, especially, you know, in the 21st century. Because um, who, who is anybody to say, what's right or wrong with something that you have no control over. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like a, a, a behavior or a morality thing. It's just, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, what was interesting when I was in fashion was it wasn't so much a dictation of what, whether a person ate overate or didn't eat at all the people they hired were specific were had specific metabolisms these women were eating cheeseburgers and not gaining weight like at lunch they would just be i'm like you what are you doing i I, <laughs> I i i couldn't understand how somebody could eat all the rubbish they were eating and still look that way and and I realized that they specifically are bringing these people on because of that, mm -hmm. almost like um, like an X Men mutant gift to not keep their lunch. <laughs> and anybody who was getting traction in the modeling industry, if they ever found out that they were starving themselves or puking or whatever, they got ousted. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, that 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 whole experience from like, I guess it was 2012. I, I, that was my last experience with it. That's what was brought to mind when I read that poem. Was just how messed up the fashion industry was and how strict they were about like the kinds of people who were allowed to be in front of the lens. Mm -hmm. I uh, I started going to a gym out in Phoenix back in. 2013, I had, you know, I had, had pounds to lose. And when I found strength in my body, I latched onto that very quickly and started kind of competing with myself. Um, in advance of a major surgical procedure I was having, I set a goal like, okay, well, I'm going to be down for 12 weeks. I can't work out. So uh, I, I better lose as much as possible. 
so that I can have a cushion is literally where my brain went for that. And about a year after that, um, I started, I started losing weight when I wasn't intending to, um, with many, many diagnoses and doctors later, I learned that I had, um, a digestive disorder that had led to malnutrition. But the trouble was that all of these foods were making me sick. And so I developed a fear of food. I was afraid to eat because everything hurt. Um, but at the same time, I found myself very attracted to the, the way my body had started to look, the way my body felt, the way I didn't notice I was hungry anymore. Um, and there was very definitely a sense of control involved. And I finally kind of, after I came through the other side of that, I finally got it like, oh, when they say eating disorders are about control and not necessarily about the food, like, okay, I get that now. And, um, it was a weird, it was a brief, but weird place to be, you know, the, the comments I got constantly like, oh my God, you look great. And you know, you've lost so much weight. I mean, I lost 15 pounds in nine months because I wasn't trying to do, but my body just wouldn't let me absorb anything. And uh, it was interesting to still feel wrong in my body and that other people still considered it not quite perfect. It was a, it's a, it's a weird place to be. Body image issues are messed up. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, what's interesting though, is, um, I, I had a, oh, I guess she's still my nutritionist, but I can only see her once or twice a year because of insurance. But last fall I was talking with my nutritionist, um, and I'm like, what kind of diet should I be on? Uh, cause I gain weight really easily. It's purely genetic. Um, and I gain it in my belly, which is like the worst for the heart. Um, and she's like, don't diet. Just, you know, measure the amount of fiber and protein. And here's here's kind of the math that you should be looking at for every meal. And I'm like, okay, that is really simple. And she goes, yeah, and also feel free to, you know, eat pizza on some weekends if you want. And I'm like, how does that help and she was right. basically telling me that if i don't occasionally eat the food i really want then i'll never lose weight she's mm -hmm. like it's it's it, there's a mental health aspect to it um and she said that anybody who's ever tried to just deprive themselves completely of like i guess soul food <laughs> is the reason it's called that mm -hmm. um they'll always fail Mm -hmm. And you know, I've been failing. I've been failing for so long, 15 years now, that uh, these past few months where I have been keeping track of the nutrition label, I've been sleeping better, uh, breathing better. And um, there was something you said that reminded me of it. Uh, I forget what it was. I guess we don't. Listeners can go back to it um, and re-listen, but um, make that connection for me. <laughs> uh, just, 
No, I, I get it though. My so the the digestive disorder that I have um, requires management with a very specific diet, mm-hmm. and um, there are foods that I just cannot eat anymore. I cannot have onion. I cannot have anything with molasses in it at all. It's all like the list of things to avoid is excruciatingly long. And when you start this process, it's a elimination diet. And then after a short elimination phase, when you found your symptoms have gone away, then you start slowly reintroducing all these other foods. And I didn't want to, I was afraid of reintroduction and my dietitian yelled at me because she said, you are ex- exceedingly strict. You do not need to be on the elimination phase at this point. You are not allowing your body the, the challenge to see if these foods are okay for you. And you don't need to be that strict. And I was weird. Like I was pouty about that. Like, don't, don't tell me I'm too strict about it. But also there was this weird sense of pride because like, I felt like I won, yeah. but, but at the same time, staying on that elimination phase for about a year, which was probably about 11 months longer than I needed to, um, it, I, I broke. I did exactly what all of the books and articles said that you do is that you stay on it too long and then it's too hard to stay on that strict of a diet and you cave and then you cave hard and then you wind up right back where you started and everything hurt and fighting myself with food again. And it was just not a fun place to be. Um, I have balance issues as well and I nearly just fell off my chair. So that's, that'll be fun for the, for the podcast. Everybody gets to see that. So, do you, did you like onion previously? Do you oh, yeah. It? I make yeah. the world's best onion rings. Yeah, I love onion. Um, <laughs> I can't eat them. But bell pepper rings are a decent substitute. Did you invent those or were they previous? No. Thank you, Internet, for bell pepper rings. I mean, what? how do you feel? If you were to eat an onion right now, how would you feel? Like, what would, what would happen? In, in the immediate, I'd be fine. Tomorrow, um, I would not be able to go to work. I would have severe digestive distress Uh, and then probably a week's worth of pain and bloating and just generally feeling awful and uncomfortable. Okay. Which kitty is that? That is Juliet, also known as Jujubee, also known as Choo Choo Train, depending on how hungry she is. (laughs) She's very cute. She's their sister. She's eating some leftover food. <laughs> um, I also like they run lines, which is like right next to it. Thank you. That was um, that one. I, I remember when I wrote that one. Um, my brother read it, and he's like, "That's really creepy. I don't like it." <laughs> like, I like the, the slow legal venom. Mm-hmm. Slow legal. That one, I think I might have written when I was in the hospital after my hysterectomy. That was like, the, look, they're hooking me up to IVs. This is what they're doing. This, this is really what they're doing. Made sense. This, the, the second one that I was going to bring up wasn't that one, though. It was white mares. Uh-huh. 
That's, That's page okay. 28 for those of I you can... who uh, get the book. I would be happy to read that one. Yeah, do you want to read it? I will. I will tell you that this was a nightmare that I had. Um, there is a much beloved open mic uh, out in the Lansing, Michigan area um, called The Poetry Room. And it is put on at the Robin Theater. If you are in Michigan, when we can be in person again, please look them up both and come say hi. Um, we moved to, back to Michigan in 2017 and I had not found anywhere to perform and to read and the poetry room was brand new that summer and I found a family with them and I love them and I, I think I've missed it was a, it's a monthly thing with the exception of like a two month summer break and I'm pretty sure I've only missed two in four years so they're they're my they're my poetry community and I love them all uh, but I had a, a nightmare where I was on stage and absolutely forgot everything. Like, I think my, my papers were all blank and I don't, I just, I had this awful dream. So I wrote nightmares. Looking down the barrel of a mic, white hot light, pale in the bright, trying to remember how to breathe, how to read, and second guessing every line I've ever written. If it looks effortless, I am a better actor than poet, a master of disguise, hide my hands beneath my thighs, stop my feet from tapping Morse code, spelling out, she is a fraud, afraid. You can see it in her eyes. These are lies. Every letter my mouth forms, any heart my word warms, they are false. And I tremble in these nightmares, these stage frightmares, knowing I will be seen, knowing this is no dream, knowing I will come back for more, a monthly encore, sneaking out the stage door, shake more. This spoken word, this need to be heard is harder than it seems, even harder than the dreams. Yeah. Oh, I'm so rusty. <laughs> no, it's, I love that. There's some energy to that. And it's the, I think that's the anthem of National Poetry Month because <laughs> I got to tell you this, the, um, there's an underlying theme of, um, what is it? Poser syndrome or, um, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody feels that. Um, I tell you, there are, pe there, are, there are people in every medium who have succeeded beyond what most artists could ever hope for who don't feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. um, I know this one guy who, um, I mean, I know a, lot, a few people who've won the Jerry Prize at Sundance who, like, still feel like they haven't made it. You know, it's just like you won the top prize at the top festival in the world and, and you, you still feel like you're not there yet. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, just earlier I refer, I said, can I call this a poetry career? I don't even know, like, I, this is what I, this is what I do. And I still feel like it's weird and like conceited to say that. Like, but no, I, I write poetry. It's okay for me to be okay with it. Like, but it feels weird to be excited about it. But mm. I... I think the thing that always gets me, especially when I go to uh, certain performances and certain readings and is when I see someone I admire on stage 
and I can tell that they're shaking. Or I can tell that, you know what, they're interesting that this poet has not taken their hand out of their pocket. Like, <laughs> everybody has their thing that they do to keep themselves from shaking or showing it. And like, I, I don't memorize my poetry. My husband always tells me I should, but I don't. Um, I, I don't like to hold a microphone. I, I did a, a reading out in Phoenix once where I had to hold the microphone and I had just loose leaf paper in my hand and I was at a coffee shop and I'm already trying really hard not to shake. And I had half of my poems on my lap and the door opened and oh. you know, yeah, you know, everything fluttered right down to the floor. So I had to, I mean, out of my hand and everything. And I had to lean down to pick them up. And in that moment, the whole coffee shop was like, oh, and I'm like, I was in the middle of a poem. Like, like, oh, I'm, I'm not done. <laughs> so I won't, I won't hold a microphone. I need a mic stand. I, I, if I'm going to diva about anything, it's that one thing. But when I see what other poets are doing on stage to control their nerves, it makes me feel better. Like, oh, they still get nervous. Okay. It's not just me. <laughs> this is so good. Everybody's awkward up here. It's okay. Yeah, they are. And because it has nothing to do with the work and everything to do with too many eyes staring at you. Mm. And that's it. Um, you know, I think the proper setup for all poetry nights is a podium. There should always be a podium. And if there isn't a podium, people shouldn't participate. <laughs> Like, I think that we, you know, we need to start like demanding podiums as a regular right. expected thing. I, when I first started reading out, I was at this, this, uh, the black box stage at the, I can't remember the big, it was the CAC stage in downtown Phoenix. And I was reading and I'm hearing this sound in the, in the monitor behind me. And I'm like, I, what is this noise? And I realized I had was nervously tapping my foot and the mic was picking up the tapping of my foot. And so it was just clicking. And so like, I, I had to, I had to get that under control real quick. I'm like, okay, so I have to, I either have to sit on my hands. So I either need a, something to put my paper on, or I can't hold the mic. Like I just, you got to figure it out. You have to figure out your, your thing. And how to avoid it. Do you, um, how do you curate what you're going to read on Poetry Night? Oh, that depends on a couple things. Uh, when I, when I'm reading at the Poetry Room, for example, there's almost always a monthly theme. Um, and 98% of the time, I don't read to the theme and I get up on stage and I'm like, so I know the theme is this, but oh, well, like, I don't, I don't rules very well. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't actually really love poetry prompts because I, that's not, that's not necessarily how I write. I don't, I don't necessarily write well to a guidebook, you know, I need, I need, it doesn't feel authentic to me. Yeah. I, I write 
something in the moment because that's what I'm feeling in the moment. I was going to go down into my basement yesterday to work out and I stopped in the middle of my hallway for 20 minutes to write a poem on my phone because that's where I was and that's what happened. And so I typically won't go terribly well with the prompt if I if I have something to go with it. Uh, a couple, you know, maybe a year ago, there was a prompt that was family business. And so I read a poem called Imposter Syndrome. And it is largely about how I have felt in my family and how that kind of pertains to me as an adult and me as a writer. And, you know, so it kind of squeaked in under the theme a little bit. Um, I, you know, pre-COVID, I host a an open mic myself at a coffee shop not terribly far from here. And I will typically bring 10 poems with me. And sometimes I read them all. Sometimes I, in those situations, I have the ability to judge based on the crowd. Like, oh, there's a large number of children in the coffee shop tonight. I'm not going to read that one. Um, you know, I can, you can tell when a poem about you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is not going to go over well, unfortunately. And you you kind of pick and choose a little bit. When I'm in a room with a lot of moms and women, I will probably read some of the ones about motherhood yeah. because I know they get it. Um, I read, uh, I performed at a burlesque show in Boston in 2019, probably my favorite performance to date. And uh, I read the very last poem in the book, um, which is called To the Girl Giving Head in the Back of the Parking Lot. Because like, I'm, if I'm reading at a burlesque show called Church of Slut, I'm going to read that poem yeah. there. And it went over exactly as I had hoped it would. Um, you know, so it's just, it kind of, sometimes it just depends on my mood. If I think I can handle it, I'll read the poems about losing my dad. If I don't think I'm in a good place for it, those are going to get a pass, you know, and if I'm in a comfortable place, if I'm, if I'm with a, the right group of people, I'll read it anyway and break down on stage. Do, you, do you record your uh, readings? Sometimes. Um, typically, if, <clears throat> if someone is in attendance with me, uh, they'll record them. I do have a YouTube channel. I do not update it very often. My husband just told me I needed to get back on that. Mm -hmm. He's right. I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> you have an asset having a filmmaker for a husband. You should use it. I know. I know. <laughs> but I also have a, a precocious almost 10-year-old who wants to be the star of all of the shows also. We had to send the two of them out to run errands so that I could do this. Oh, you know what you could do now, though, is because you need um... – there's very strict rules now having kids on YouTube. So you could be like, well, it's actually now illegal for you to be in my YouTube video. So that's good to know. Thank you. This is yeah, good. They've, uh, they've made it very strict because kids were starting to get hurt because their parents were pulling dangerous pranks for the sake of a YouTube view. Yeah. <laughs> but now that's you can use mom, it. That hurts. <laughs> and as a creator, I think that's not good enough. <laughs> like, yeah. You got to be better than that. Yeah. But yeah, definitely, uh, there's not enough. And I actually told this to another poet who's also going to go up in April along with you. Um, 
I told her that there are so few writers represented on YouTube that if you get on now, you can really get a head start building mm -hmm. a, a follower base. It's slow. Yeah. And I probably don't know. How, like, Instagram is where I find the most response and the most community. Uh, for my poetry, I probably just don't know how to effectively use YouTube. Well, I, how I do it is, um, so my channel is part podcast, part my films, but then there's also a playlist for my readings. So if I'm applying to read in New York, you kind of have to apply to read on poetry nights because there's just so it's just such a dense uh, population of people here who do that rather in addition to sending the written poem, I'll send what it sounds like when I read it. And so I just kind of use YouTube as a way of kind of being an asset to an application to stuff like that. Um, but I'll also do it. Um, I don't know if you have a submittable account. Mm -hmm. um, when I, when I'm on submittable, I'll also add links to my, Ooh. my reading playlist. I had not thought of that. Yeah, because because so much. Um, I mean, people. What I figured out is people read things differently than how I intend them to be read. Absolutely. And so, if they can hear how I read it, then they they can get the the vibe. A it's. Easier. I think that's one of my favorite things about poetry. Um, there is definitely room for page poets as well as stage poets and slam poets, but I love the performance aspect myself. But I also enjoy. The book element of it and it's fascinating to me when I hand someone something to read and then I read it later and they wow I did not get it that way at all like that is not at all how I interpreted that when I read it and that's a phenomenon I do not understand but You know, I mean, I, I'm in my own head when I write it and I know I know what I felt when I wrote it and I know where I was when I wrote it. And I understand I know the headspace that came from where it came from. And you might not have that same connection to it. And so it's it's just it's an it's a really interesting element of poetry to me that like, you know, you can you can read a a book, you know, you you read, you know, and everything has its own you know, general theme or the moral of the story, but like, you know, okay, guy meets girl, guy breaks her heart, you know, girl does whatever. But with poetry, it's, it's very different. And it's very, it's not as black and white. You know, the, the words that I put down don't mean the same thing to you as they do to me. And I think that's yeah. a beautiful thing about poetry. Well, I think that's the that's why creating these collections and making them available is important too. Is because over time, and maybe even over the course of a single collection, you're teaching them how to read it. Mm -hmm. So, like with a novel, you have chapter after chapter to teach them how to read it. Who the the same thing with like I mean, look at a space movie. Everybody has their different idea of what space is. So every space movie, they have to define their rules of space. That's why you have these exposition scenes. Oh, we can't do this because of this. They're def they're telling the audience how to. Oh, here's our version of space. Here's our version of of why 
we're we're going to choose what we choose the, the storytelling decisions we're going to choose and here's why so the the importance this is why i don't i don't really buy journals that collect different poets i prefer to buy collections from single authors because um the curation is part of teaching me how to read each piece mm -hmm. whereas if you have a collection of different authors it's fine for the sake of exposure but i'm not learning how to read each piece and it can be a little disjointed yeah um i am in i have quite a few pieces published in some collaborative journals like that um Stadger review released there's their issue six yesterday that i'm in um, capsule stories is a favorite as well and i love all of them and they're curated you know they're to a theme and they're beautifully put together but i have also been involved in a couple anthologies where it's just like I, uh, my work feels like it sticks out and that's not to say that mine is better or worse than anybody else's in there but it feels like it doesn't fit and it, it feels like i'm trying to put together a puzzle of a hundred pieces and every single piece is from a different puzzle yeah. you know and they, they they fit but at the end of it i don't really like the picture that's in front of me and it doesn't really look right and it's not very cohesive and i don't well, these two at least are the same color, but I, they don't go together. It doesn't work. So yeah, I, I uh, that you've described exactly how I feel <laughs> with collections. Um, you just hit the nail on the head. It's perfect. Oh, yeah. um, somebody here is a poet. So this is work. This is work. You're doing the promotional aspects. Of it. I am. I, I told my my son as they were. He's like, I don't want to go do errands. Like, yeah, you know what? I I don't get to do this kind of work all that often. So, like, please leave the house. I love you. Let me do my work. This is this, this is part of my work. This is my other work, and I love it, and I yeah. miss it. Maybe someday a publisher will pay you to do it. Well, that's. <laughs> I I have I have my secrets. I, I will say that I do have a third book or another book, not a third book. I guess it would be technically the fourth book. Uh, I have completed a full length poetry collection. Um, and I I can say that I did recently receive an acceptance. However, um, I have not responded to it yet um, because I also have that book submitted to a number of contests and other journals that have not responded yet and so I'm kind of in this weird little limbo of but but what if the next one is better like yeah, yeah. I mean I, it's a I'm very proud of the upcoming book do they give you a, a a timeline on when you can respond uh not yet. I so far all I've gotten was the submittable response through the the portal. They said, "Hey, we'd like to publish," and you'll receive an email. Check your spam if you don't see it in the next month. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, but that only happened on Tuesday, so I'm I'm still very much fresh in the yay. Yeah, no, things things are looking up though. Things are things that's are amazing. going in the right direction, and I'm happy for that.
Well, when you when you get around to getting this book out, I, I'd love to have you back on. You're a good conversationalist. Thank uh, you. Appreciate and, it. This uh, has been a fun afternoon. Yeah, it's been a good hour, and uh, I feel like there's a lot of a lot of good. Um, just he, here's some ideas on how to pursue your your writing uh, life. You know, <laughs> elements of it. Yes, because in the end, part of the thing I want to do with this podcast is is normalize creation as a way of life mm-hmm. you use the word career a lot which is fine i love the idea of just calling it a creative life regardless um i, I find it's it's easier to uh accept yeah <laughs> you know and and that's a, an, an excellent point because my you know if i had to say my overall goal with my poetry it's it is not you know rich and famous there are not a lot of poets who are rich and famous because of poetry um there are definitely some but you know having my work do well is nice um if i make some money off of it whether it's book sales or performances wonderful but for me, it's understanding. It's um, when I when I got off the stage in Boston at the burlesque show. I remember before the show, emailing the producer and saying, "Are you sure? Are you really, really sure you want me in my not burlesque performance to get up on stage and be a woman with a disability who's not performing a burlesque?" performance reading poetry are you sure that your audience <laughs> is gonna get it like are you are you really sure like I this was like two days before my flight and she said I know my audience shut up you're, you're gonna be fine they're gonna love it and to date that was my favorite performance ever I got off stage and uh, one of the stage managers came up to me and they had tears in their eyes and specifically interestingly enough they were talking about the poem called to the girl giving head in the back of the parking lot and they said that poem made me cry and nobody would ever said that to me before they all laugh hysterically because it's funny but the poem at its core is about anxiety and the stress of every day and marital stress and how important it can be to not lose yourself and not lose your relationship. And they said, I know exactly what you meant by that. And I said, well, then you got it, didn't you? Like, that was the first time anybody really got it. And having people come up to me after a show and say, like, you're a woman with a disability and you're on this stage and you're, you're doing it. And I'm like, we've never seen that representation that meant a lot to me. And so for me, it's not about, you know, please buy my book. It's please understand me. And please know that I understand you maybe. And please know that you're not alone in your thoughts. Our heads are scary places to be. And if you're alone in there too much, it'll really mess you up. And I think it's important to know that there are other people in the world who also feel that way. And some people can put it into words and some people put what I'm feeling into words where I couldn't before. And 
I think that's what it's about is just not, not being alone. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get higher than that. I think we should end on that. Right. That's, <laughs> that's really, that's so perfect. And I think that's the thesis of our conversation. Um, this was a great conversation. You're welcome back anytime you want. Thank you, Eric. This was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. I'll on my Sunday. All right. Bye. Take care. Your kid can come home now. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one.